Welcome to State Bar of Michigan's On Balance Podcast, where we talk about practice management and lawyer wellness for a thriving law practice with your hosts, Joanne Hathaway and Tish Vincent, here on Legal Talk Network. Take it away, ladies. Hello, and welcome to another edition of the State Bar of Michigan's On Balance podcast on Legal Talk Network. I'm Tish Vincent. And I'm Joanne Hathaway. We're very pleased to have Baron Henley, attorney and legal technologist with Affinity Consulting, join us today as our podcast guest to talk about tech competency, core technologies for your law firm. We specifically picked the topic of tech competency for today's podcast because Michigan has now become the 37th state to adopt the ethical duty of technology competence to be effective January 1 of 2020. So, Baron, would you share some information about yourself with our listeners? I am a legal technology geek. Um, and let's see, for the last 22 years since I left private practice, um, I'm a partner with Affinity Consulting, as you mentioned, and we just help law firms and legal departments maximize technology in a nutshell. So, Baron, could you share with our listeners how you define competency with core technology tools? What would that include? Well, uh, understanding the tools necessary to do one's job. For example, Word, Outlook, Excel, possibly PowerPoint, definitely any PDF program that the, that the lawyer may use. Um, that may also include operating systems like Windows or Mac OS would probably qualify. And then procedural things like um, how to file a case electronically if one's required to do that, how to attach a file to an email. I just talk, I, funny enough, I talked to a lawyer last week from Chicago that's going out on his own, and he's like, I don't just need to know how to word process. I don't even know how to do things like attach a file to an email. Wow. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, that happens. Yeah. Um, how to remove metadata from a, you know, like a PDF or a Word file before email to somebody, how to redact, which is getting screwed up all the time how to run a red line, how to base number, how to edit a complex document without wrecking it, um, how to do your own legal research, um, or even you know, how to look up information on your own internal systems. And you know, it's for whatever reason, it's fairly common for lawyers to have access to systems they elect not to use because it's easier to ask somebody else to tell them something that's right in their face. And you know, we hear that fairly often where the support we know we interview support staff and they're like yeah it's like right on his computer but he keeps asking me for the same information and <laughs> typical, interrupting me yes. <laughs> yeah it is unfortunately typical we we try to combat that by pointing out the the fact that only two percent of humanity can multitask successfully without a degradation in performance and that when lawyers interrupt support staff with ridiculous questions they could have answered themselves in less time they actually are forcing them to task switch and multitask and very likely it is, uh, you know, wildly impairing their performance. And it's, it's actually a lose, lose proposition when people do that. And they, I don't think people are really uh, aware, generally speaking, that when you interrupt people, you're hurting them (laughs) in most cases significantly. And obviously the, the lawyers doing that are relying on the support staff people to help them get their job done. And then they're doing things to torpedo that. Interesting. So technology competency has become a hot topic in the legal world. What factors do you think are actually driving that? Well, the first one you already mentioned, which was 
uh, that 37, so in 2012, the American Bar Association promulgated rule changes to the rules of professional conduct that dealt with technology. And that of course affected no one, but states tend to adopt those rule changes and where I'm from, Ohio adopted those changes. And now Michigan has in 37 states total. And just to give you an idea of how rapidly this is changing, so as of today, two states now require technology CLE, those being Florida and North Carolina. Um, and I speak for the North Carolina Bar, and so in 2017, I taught a Microsoft Word bootcamp for them, and it was granted zero credit. <laughs> You'll have nothing and like oh, it. <laughs> and, and I was like, really? Like, it gets credit in all the other states? And they're like, no, no credit at all. So we held it anyway, and a whole bunch of people signed up because they wanted to be there, and it was great. So I taught it again this year, and not only did it get full credit, but it also satisfied the new technology CLE requirement that appeared uh, just this year in North Carolina. So it went from absolutely, you don't get anything to, oh yeah, you get credit, and by the way, you needed that credit, because uh, as, as, it's a special category we created just for technology. Um, so that's really gotten people to think about the rule, specifically 1.1, comment eight, depending on your jurisdiction. And then there's some changes to rule 1.6, which kind of explain a duty to protect electronic client data that was really undefined previously. And then the fact is people are making mistakes uh, with this stuff. Um, like in January this year, uh, you know, a very popular uh, case study was Paul Manafort's lawyers, which were really three lawyers from three different law firms, botched a redaction in the, in the Mueller, Mueller investigation. Yes. And, um, you know, you could hold down your mouse and select the text behind the redaction and copy and paste it into Word and read it. And then just in September of this year, Jones Day, which I would think would know better, had to apologize to a Virginia federal judge for exposing secret grand jury information in a court filing, again, a botched redaction. And then even something like in September of 17, a big firm, Wilmer Cutler, Pickering, Hale and Dorr, sent to a Wall Street Journal reporter privileged documents detailing PepsiCo whistleblower claims, obviously not using encrypted email. Um, I mean, this kind of stuff is happening all the time. And, and, you know, I think the folks in each state that are responsible for the rules of professional conduct are hearing about it and going, hmm, maybe, maybe we should make that a requirement of some kind that people know how to use these things. And then, you know, what I think really affects a generation of lawyers is like I, I, I passed the bar in 1993 and you know, there wasn't email, there was the, the internet didn't exist in its current form. And, um, and, but there, you know, the, the support staff tended to have DOS computers on their, in our, in my firm anyway, they had WordPerfect DOS and that was, you know, they just graduated from Wang word processors to WordPerfect and we had little desktop PCs. The lawyers, however, did not have PCs. And I specifically remember the managing part of the firm coming in and telling me, look Bear, don't worry about the technology. Let the support staff deal with that. You spend all your time doing stuff only a lawyer can do. And in 1993, I could do that. I could, I could do things only a lawyer could do and not use technology. But that, of course, changed. And, and so we were told to leave it alone, don't worry about it, leave it alone, don't worry about it. Then all of a sudden, oh, wait, um, I do actually need to use this stuff in order to do my job. And we were kind of behind the eight ball at that point. And then the other complicating factor there was, you know, when I passed the bar, I got my own uh, paralegal. Like every lawyer in my firm had, it, had their own support staff. And two of the partners had two support staff people who they kept busy full time. I can't even imagine that today. But 
that ratio of support staff to lawyers has steadily declined over the in intervening years. And now if you've got something you need done by a support staff person, we'll take a number, get in line, because you're not the only person that individual is supporting. Um, so that has also caused, like, I talk to lawyers all the time who are stressed out about this. You know, they're like, God, I, gotta, I just got to figure out how to do this myself because I just cannot rely on somebody being able, available for me to help me because, you know, what I used to have my own legal assistant and now they support two other lawyers and they're always dumping on that person and I, you know, I'm, I'm never first in line. Um, and that's another reason that lawyers are saying, you know, I just, I've got to figure out how to do this myself. Um, and then a good example of this next point is I was interviewing a, a student project for a firm in North, Northeast Ohio, and I was interviewing lawyers and staff throughout the day. And I kept hearing about this one paralegal who was just bad news. They're like, man, we got to get rid of her. We got, I don't know why she's still here. She is nothing but a problem. She's not, she doesn't do her job, blah, 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 all these complaints. So I finally, toward the end of the day, I interviewed the lawyer for whom she worked. And I said, and I closed the door and I'm like, okay, so let's talk about this individual. Like everybody is telling me like, why is she still here? What's going on? And he said, you know, he was an estates and trust lawyer. Um, he goes, when I started practicing law, we didn't use technology for all these things. Now we have programs to do the probate pleadings and programs to do tax returns and programs for this and programs for that. And I've got to file things electronically with the probate court. And I don't know how to do any of that stuff. I don't even know the password for these programs. So if I let her go, who's going to train the next person? I don't know how to use these tools anymore. So yeah, and this, it even, it ended even worse because a year later they, she eventually quit but and after she left, they found out she had embezzled fifty five thousand dollars from a. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Oh no. yeah. What a nightmare. <laughs> yeah. What a so nightmare. and and they and the and the firm just had to pay that money back, right? So they just had to eat it. Um. And and that's. But that's another thing we hear that all the time. Like it, you know, if I had a nickel for every time somebody said, "I'm the only person who knows how to do this," um, you know, I'd be rich. And and the problem is a lot of times that's a some tool that they're the only one who knows how to use. And, and it's never, it's never been written down and you've got, so the, another thing that's propelling this forward is, um, you know, non-technical lawyers, they, they want to be able to do it themselves. And the ones who, once they learn how to do it, they are evangelists. Like they proselytize about like, if I can learn it, anybody, and all it takes <laughs> is one of those people in a firm, you know, and they're, out, and they're like going around saying, L listen, Bob, I know you've never used a computer before, but I, I know you can. <laughs> and and it's, it can be peer pressure that, um, that pushes that along. And then the other thing is just, uh, so I'm, again, I'm stereotyping, but you know, there's a generation of younger lawyers, millennials who grew up with the technology and, but they, they, they have blind spots. They tend to be unaware of because they feel so comfortable with the technology. You know, like um, take Microsoft Word. Uh, I get asked to teach the um, Ohio State advanced legal writing class. I don't, it's not called that anymore. It's some fancy new name. But when they have to do their first appellate brief, they ask me to come in and teach that class. And, I, I, get, and I, I don't try to teach them how to build a table of contents, table of authorities and all that stuff from scratch. I give them a template. And we spend the class time showing them how to use the template. But in order to start that, I always come in, I go, okay, how many people have been using Word since you were toddlers? And, you know, everybody raises their hand. How many people um, feel really comfortable with technology? Everybody raises their hand. 
how many people know how to do an, uh, a table of contents automatically derived from the, from the document in three clicks so that it's always right and can be automatically updated? No hands. How do you know, anybody how many know how to do a table of authorities that you can automatically update that always gives you all the references and the correct page numbers? No hands. How many people know how to build a seven level deep auto paragraph numbered outline in Word that works perfectly no matter what? No hands. How many people know how to do a cross reference to another paragraph that automatically updates if you add or delete paragraphs in between? No hands. How many people know how to not number the title page, start the page numbering at the table of authorities on, on Romanettes on one, even though it's page two, and then restart Arabic page one on page eight, where the brief starts in the overall document. And of course, there are no hands. So, they, and they're like, wow, I really don't know how to do a bunch of stuff. <laughs> but they, they wouldn't have, like, it, it always reminds me when I was, when I was uh, my favorite uh, teacher in high school was AP English. And he always made us, we had to stand at our desks and, and he'd say, repeat after me. I am ignorant, and he made me say that. He made us say that over and over until he was convinced that we believed it. So we'd yell it at him, and you know. But I a lot of times there's so so those people in that in that class realize there's a bunch of stuff I don't really understand, even though I feel super comfortable with technology, and that realization is taking hold because the reality is a lot of the tech we have to use today. If you think, go, going back to Word again, it can do, one of the things we tell people in our classes all the time is, if it occurs to you, it would be cool if Word can do the thing you're thinking of. It does that. It does the thing. And they're like, what? Really? Yeah, I'm like, yes. So it's really complicated. If it can do darn near anything you can think of, imagine. And, and they're like, wow, yeah, I guess I'm missing a lot. Yes, you are, because you're just clicking around. And if you click around, you're missing way more than half of it. Anyway, that is becoming common knowledge today. And for those reasons, um, lawyers are, are saying, you know, I've got to figure this stuff out. And, and, and of course, if somebody screws it up, like go back to the Manafort example, rule 5.1 and 5.3, I'm, I'm quite certain that the three lawyers that signed that botched redaction pleading for Paul Manafort weren't the ones probably who tried to do the redaction. It was probably a support staff person. And the problem is, Rule 5.1, if it was a subordinate lawyer, 5.1 could make them responsible for it. And if it was a non-lawyer assistant or a paralegal or a legal assistant, then Rule 5.3 could make it their fault. And very likely it was. And how are you, how are you going to hold your associates and staff accountable for knowing it if you don't know it? That's right. And so like on that particular point, what we say is, not everybody is going to be a tech genius, you know, like not every lawyer, like let's say I'm, let's say I'm Paul Manafort's lawyer and I've never ever redacted a PDF in my entire life and I don't intend to do so. And by the way, I hire people to do that. Is that a defendable position? Well, I think it depends. Uh, three things have to have occurred for that to be defendable. Number one, you confirmed that you had the right software that is capable of redaction, mm -hmm. right? So Adobe Acrobat Pro will, Adobe Acrobat Standard will not. You know, Nuance Power PDF Advanced will, Nuance Power PDF Advanced or Standard will not. So that's easy to solve that problem. Do we have the right software? And then were the steps for properly executing redaction written down? That's number two. Number three, did you as the managing partner sit down with the person you've hired to do this and make sure they're following the instructions and know how to do it? Mm -hmm. And if you did those three things and they still screwed it up, 
then I think you have a defense. Okay. I think you were in a safe harbor there. You used reasonable precautions. You did everything you could reasonably do. It, the reality is sometimes mistakes occur. Um, but if, if one or more of those steps weren't taken, I suspect none of them were, then I don't think you have any defense, honestly. Right. Don't you find that when you go out and do your trainings and go into law firms often that sometimes support staff, while they might not be sure how to do something with a software application, they're reluctant to admit that to those they, they report to because they don't want to admit they don't know what they don't know or they, they know they don't know yeah, it. Yeah, it's a culture yes, thing. And, so they, they, and they don't want their coworkers to know they don't know, so they fumble through it and, and they want to keep their jobs. Yeah. And, and, and sometimes they just don't even care. I mean, when we started doing this kind of work all these years ago, we thought we were a technology firm and we became pretty obvious that you can spend all the time and money you want on technology. If you don't look at culture and people and processes along with the technology, you get nowhere. And the people, it's one of the things I'm most uncomfortable with, but which I always have to address and that is the, you know, do some people, even if it is safe to say, they still won't say, I don't know how to do it. Like they just mm -hmm. won't admit it, even if there's no repercussions from that. Um, even if they were encouraged to do that, they won't. So like on the redaction issue, we actually ask for redacted pleadings. We ask if we're, if we're working with a litigation firm, I, I say, I need you to send me a couple of pleadings that you've redacted because I want to make sure the redaction was done properly. We just spot check it. And unfortunately, it would just happen last month. We we did a firm and they were they had two people doing redactions and one of them was doing it wrong. And all the pleadings they had, had submitted were wrong. You could defeat the redaction. And the lawyers didn't even know how to test it. But you know, those are things that you really have to you have to take ownership of. And you if I'm the managing, I mean those five one and five three are gonna make it my fault. So I gotta confirm that things are being done correctly. It's, it's just the world we live in. And sometimes that means sitting down with people and even if they're uncomfortable talking about it, saying, I just want to, let's do this together. And then the lawyer feels comfortable. And then ultimately if it's written down and the person who normally does it isn't there, then the lawyer can probably pull it off themselves, even though they've never done it before. When I show people how to do that, they're like, well, that was really easy. I'm like, I know. It's so easy. It's like four clicks. So you go, you, there's a button in Adobe Acrobat called Redact. It's not like you have to look for it. It's called what it does. You mark your, you mark your redaction. You apply the redaction. You click save. Bada bing. But, you know, if, if you don't know what to click on, don't know where to go, and not familiar with the process, don't have the steps written down, it may as well be, you know, not even available as a feature. So Very interesting. Well, you talked a little bit about how um, an attorney can check on whether a program has been implemented properly, even if they don't really know how to use it. But let's talk about, let's say if that lawyer knows that they need to develop some tech competency and they don't have it, what are the beginning steps you'd recommend to them, Baron? Well, the first thing I would do is I would start asking questions like let's let's take something like uh, ransomware. Uh, ransomware is ineffectual if you have a good backup. I don't, you know, people don't talk about that. They're like, oh no, this firm got taken over by ransomware. Well, it, that wouldn't have mattered if they could restore from backup. Right. And every time somebody is actually held hostage by that, then it's because they didn't have a backup. So some of it is like, stop assuming that everything is fine and everything is working. 
there should be some way to confirm or deny, for example, that my backup worked. And, and my IT people should be able to explain that to me, just as a lawyer can explain a complex process in lay terms to a person unfamiliar with it so that they can understand it. An IT person should be able to do the same thing. They should be able to explain how the system works. Um, you know, like a backup. We, we ask our, when I'm working with law firms, I say, like, I don't care who your IT people are, but here's what you need to ask them. For example, do I have, how do I confirm or deny that it occurred? Somebody should be able to independently verify that. The second thing is, do I have versions of things? And they'll go like, what's, what do you mean by that? <laughs> okay, like, if you accidentally override a file, can you get a prior version of it? Um, if you've got, do you have an accounting system? Sure, yeah, we got an accounting system. Okay, well, what happens if that database gets corrupted? Database corruption doesn't occur typically all at once. A lot of times it happens gradually over time. Monday, people were having problems. Tuesday, I entered a time entry and it just disappeared. And I had to restart the program. Not sure what was up with that. And then Wednesday, everybody was complaining about it. Thursday, we came in and no one could get in. And we called the tech support and they said, oh, you probably got a corrupted database. Do you have a backup? Well, yeah. If you have a backup of the thing that got backed up last night and that's it, you have a copy of the corrupted database no one can open. So it's it's completely useless. What I want is last Friday's database. Can I get that? That's the question. And so we ask, you know, that's the, those, if you, I want my IT people to be able to explain this to me. Could I get last Friday's version of the database? And if I can't, that's not okay. Like I have to be able to recover. I would like at least seven rolling backups of everything. And if, as, it, as it relates to my files, my individual files I'm using in WordPerfect or Word, I would like to have 30 days or 60 days or maybe unlimited uh, versions of those things because we're constantly overwriting files and trading files and taking an old file and saving it as a new file name for, a, for the next one that I need to create. And that creates a really big margin for error. Um, uh, having policies, you know, just, and there's lots, even if you're not a member of the American Bar Association, for example, they have tons of sample policies and things. And most bar associations, like Joanne's uh, office with the practice management advisory, they have all kinds of resources for people on, on you know, what, what policies should I have? Like data security, password strength, file management, internet usage, social media. I was interviewing a lawyer about a month ago, and we were talking about um, remote access for her firm. And, she, and I'm like, how is it here? And she goes, it's terrible. I hate it. And I like to work from home. This was a California firm. And so everybody there had to drive like two hours a day to get to and from the office. So they wanted to, a lot of them wanted to like stay at home until like 11 and come in then when the traffic was lighter and then go home at 8 PM. You know, they all had weird hours to try to avoid the nightmare traffic there. And, and I said, well, how do you get because all of the lawyers there had desktop computers. I'm like, how do you get files home? She goes, well, I either put it on my thumb drive and she pulls it out of her purse and it's, you know, a little unsecured thing that she probably, that's her fifth one she's had in the last two years. Um, <laughs> and she goes, well, I either put it on my thumb drive or I just email it to myself. Uh, and I said, well, even if you use the thumb drive, don't you just, don't you plug that into your home computer? I assume that's what you're doing. She goes, yeah. I'm like, well, who, who does, does your, uh, does your family have access to the computer? And she goes, mm, yeah, my husband does. And I have two daughters. I get, we all use the same computer. I'm like, do you have a, do you have that walled off? Is there a separate login so that they can't get to those files? She goes, no, I guess they could get to the files. I said, do you delete them after you're done? No, they're still there. I just email them back to myself. 
when I'm when I'm done. And she's like, she goes, okay, okay, I get your point because <laughs> I was like asking her <laughs> questions and I was leading her down that path. And but the problem was like the, it didn't occur to her that that was a risky thing. Um, and the firm didn't have any policies on it. So like no one said, it's not okay to email files to your home computer to which other people have access. That's not okay. Um, and, and, and it's not, it's also, I mean, you could get on amazon.com and get a, an encrypted thumb drive mm-hmm. or flash drive. There's lots, almost all the makers offer that and that would be okay. But the problem is people lose those things all the time. And if there's confidential data on them, then that's, that's bad news. Just, just unawareness, but there needs to be a policy for that. You know, like we argue that every lap, anything that holds client data or has access to client data needs to be encrypted. So on a, it's hardly ever that I encounter even a, a laptop user. L- lawyers are running around with hundreds of thousands of confidential files on their laptops, and they're not encrypted at all. Um, and, and I'm like, D- like, what kind of computer do you have? I got a Windows 10 computer. Is it is it Windows 10 Pro? Yes. Okay, you have BitLocker. It's included for free. Do you have a Mac? Yes. Oh, you have FileVault. It's concluded for free. You just have to turn it on. Like, well, does that make it harder to use? No, <laughs> just the same. <laughs> but if somebody steals your computer, they're not going to be able to get to all the files. And, and, as, you know, and then if that happens, uh, well, you should look up the breach notification laws in your state um, because, <laughs> yes. you know, those are going to kick in right now and you're going to have to notify everybody. And if you don't, there's penalties associated with it. But, yeah, I mean, I've read a whole bunch of these breach notification laws and almost all of them say that what constitutes a, a breach? The disclosure of unencrypted data. Many of the states say those exact that exact phrase, unencrypted data. So in other words, if it's encrypted, uh, then you didn't disclose anything. And I'm not subject to those breach notification laws. And it's a simple thing. And a lot of times that, you know, that's, that, that's already on their computer. So that's a really a passive thing. Once it's set up for them, now I have my, you know, my, most phones today are encrypted anyway by default. Uh, the tablets, we always tell them if they've got an Android or an iPad, it comes with free encryption software, but you have to turn it on. It's not turned on by default. And the same thing is true for your computers. You could turn it on. It's probably already there and it won't cost you anything. And it doesn't, I mean, yes, you have to use a password every time you use your device, but that's how it is. Like security is annoying. The better your security, the more annoyed you're going to be. And those, that's unavoidable. It's just the world we live in. Another thing I would say on those, on the people that want to like step it up, Document your processes. Write down, and it's, it's you know they're always like ah this sounds complicated. It's not complicated. What's the name of the step? Who usually does it? How long does it usually take? What tools do they use? And if there's some decision to be made, then what are the considerations to make the right call? That's it. Like you can do this in a word processing document. But what's what's interesting is a lot of times in firms the lawyer is unaware of all of the steps because they don't, they're not responsible for all the steps. They do some of the steps and then other people do other of the steps and they don't even know how that work gets done. And when like we do that a lot, we help them document processes and it's, uh, it's hardly ever the case where, where a lawyer doesn't look at multiple of the steps and go, what, what are you doing? Why are you doing it like that? And invariably the, in their defense, will go, you're the one who told me to do it that way. I've been doing it this way for 15 years and you're the one who told me. And they're like, well, I don't remember that. Well, they didn't come up with it out of thin air. So somebody taught them to do it that way. And if the, if, a, if a bad process is the way they've always done it, then it's the normal bad process. And they don't recognize it as bad or inefficient or, or anything else. So just writing those things down and knowing 
it also makes it a lot harder to miss a step. And it also makes it easier to see where technology could be fixed or improved or added uh, to, to make that whole thing work better. And, and it helps with you know fumbled handoffs and, and things like that. And getting training on the tech tools that people use. You know, more CLE providers are offering these kind of um, core technology based on how often I traveled. A lot of them are doing this because I, I, I teach a lot of those classes. And so they're, you know, the, the phones are ringing because people are recognizing that I need. So you can get CLE credit for it. It's a really inexpensive way. Like if I'm going to be in a state and somebody calls me and says, I'd like you to do word training for me and my, you know, my colleagues. And I'm, if I'm going to be in their state anyway, I'm like, I, I can save you a lot of money if you'll just sign up for the CLE class because it's kind of expensive to bring me in compared to what a CLE costs. You know, a full day CLE is not terribly bad and they get the workbook and they get the credit and, you know, it's, it's, it's all good. And then the other part of it is the uh, training. A lot of times you're using the technology as a team, so you should get training as a team. Um, and sometimes a lawyer will attend a CLE class like that, and they go back to their office and try to convey all the stuff they heard and learned at the, at the class to the other people who didn't attend the class, and that never works. Like there's too much information, and there's some of it is lost in translation. And in most jurisdictions, it's fine to bring a support staff person, and a lot of times they they get a big discount because they obviously don't need the CLE credit. And we always encourage for these kind of things, if you work as a group, then bring the group. And then you can all talk about it and, and, and learn it together. And then nobody will have to go back and re-explain it. And then the other part of it is we'll go into an office and join. I'm sure you see this all the time. They have a, you know, a case management program that was installed, let's say, six years ago. And half the users love it and half of them hate it. And the, the point of division is usually when they started. Like the, the, half the people that like it were there for the original installation and the original training. And, and the people who hate it came in after that happened and nobody ever provided them with formal training. They was like, just figure it out, click around. And, if, you know, like we talked about, that doesn't work. So they think it's stupid and it doesn't do anything because they didn't get the factory training. So that um, my point here is just refresh training is really important. And, and you think about, oh, we have this tool and we're using it. But, OK, how many of the users currently employed in your office uh, went through that training. And if they, if some percentage of them didn't, then you should have refresh training on that same thing. And it makes everybody better. It raises the bar across the board because there's things people forgot about. Um, maybe they're not using it correctly and a good trainer would spot that. And then the other people are going to be brought along. And then you don't have this grumbling about the technology that they can't stand because they don't understand it. And then, you know, like the document drafting, big source of errors, uh, stop recycling old documents and instead create templates, create gold standards that you can always go back to that are correctly formatted so that editing them isn't, isn't horrible and it works the way it should. And you're not just taking the last one because if you keep recycling documents, it's way too easy to leave something in you should have taken out. It's way too easy to have left something out you should have added. And in many practice areas, that document was negotiated with opposing counsel, depending on what it is, like if it's a lease or a settlement agreement or something like that, unless you can remember all the little compromises that you had to make in order to get to a document everybody was willing to sign, you know intellectually it's flawed, but if it's the best you got, then it's the best you got, but that doesn't make it a good starting point. Um, and, and some of these documents, like I got a, a document emailed to me from a family law firm in Minneapolis a couple of months ago. 
the metadata clearly revealed it as having been originally created in 2001. Oh, wow. <laughs> this is an 18-year-old. And she emails it to me. She goes, we use this for all of our uh, divorce decrees. And man, it's problematic. The formatting is really messed up. And when you're using it, a lot of times your computer locks up. <laughs> I'm like, well, there's a reason for that. <laughs> it's super old and it was loaded with the, I said, you used WordPerfect, didn't you, at one point? Because I can see all kinds of residue in here from this having previously been a WordPerfect. They're like, oh, yeah, we did. We had WordPerfect for years. I'm like, okay. So you had an improperly converted document that's been recycled and recycled hundreds of thousands of times over the years. No wonder you're having problems with it. So you like, and, and what we would do with something like that is I'm not going to try to resuscitate that document because it can't be saved. The only thing you can do is create a blank new document in Word, save it as a new file name, copy the text from the old one, and paste it with no formatting into the new one, then rebuild the formatting from scratch to match the original. That's the only safe way to do it. You can't fix that container. You can't patch it. You got to get a new container and start over. And law firms don't do that. They just, they're like, what? You, you do what? <laughs> I'm like, yes, I know, but that's the only safe way to do it. And then now you've got a, a good starting point, but you have to keep coming back to the same starting point and not just keep rolling forward to the last one you did, last one you did, last one you did, and, and build something with consistently identified changeable text, optional text identified, and every paragraph that could possibly occur in that document in the order that it could occur, annotated. And this costs you no money at all. It's just a good Word document starting point. And that alone, it eliminates the negotiated problem. It eliminates the you forgot to put something in. It eliminates the you forgot to take something out. Because they're, it's identified. Like, this is an optional paragraph. You might not need it. It's not, it, you know, if there's no annotations in front of or after it, it's really easy to miss. So, there's, I mean, there's a lot of things uh, like that. And then even talking to your clients about security. You know, like because the, the the comments to Rule 1.6, both comments uh, to Rule 1.6 that deal with confidentiality of information say the client can ask you to do more than required by the rules in terms of security. So, you know, there's a conversation that should occur up front because I don't want to find out after we've gotten going on this that, oh, by the way, my client is super sensitive to this stuff and, and you know, we've got a... Uh, they're not happy with me emailing, for example, via regular email, a document containing their personally identifiable information. So anyway, I know, I'm sorry, I've been like on a rant, but. Oh, it's, it's wonderful, but we could talk to you for three days. Yes, <laughs> and Baron is going to be coming back with us for another podcast on tech competency to talk about some of those security issues. So we're pleased to uh, be uh, welcoming him back in the very near future. Well, Baron, it looks like we've come to the end of our show. We'd like to thank our guest today, Baron Henley, for a wonderful program. Baron, if our guests would like to follow up with you, how can they reach you? Email is the best way. B, as in Baron, Henley, H-E-N-L-E-Y, at affinityconsulting.com. And that's A-F-F-I-N-I-T-Y, consulting.com. I tell you to call me, but I'm just, I'm not ever in the office, so that's, <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs> email, if I'm awake, I'm connected to email. I'm happy to answer any questions. And thanks for having me. Oh, thank you, Baron. This has been another edition of the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. I'm Joanne Hathaway. And I'm Tish Vincent. Until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to the State Bar of Michigan On Balance podcast. Brought to you by the State Bar of Michigan and produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. 
If you'd like more information about today's show, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via Apple Podcasts and RSS. Find the State Bar of Michigan and Legal Talk Network on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Or download Legal Talk Network's free app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network or the State Bar of Michigan or their respective officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.